0: Welcome to a special episode of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with Banking Circle at Money 2020 US, taking place at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. We're on the Banking Circle booth in the very busy Expo, and I'm going to be chatting to a number of the speakers and attendees from the conference. And so we hope that through these short conversations, we'll be able to provide you with a real flavour and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed here at the event. So I'm here with Tom Collins, Head of Global Payments at JAW. Tom, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Good to be here. You were speaking yesterday, one of the first people speaking at at the conference. Um, It was on customer experience, the ultimate marketing tool. How did that go? Yeah, it was great. Um, With
1: my panelists who brought uh, B2C experience coupled with our B2B experience, it was really a good conversation. So, you know, we talked a lot about obviously serving the front end customer, right? With a great experience that makes it easy for them to make purchases. And in B2C, I think it's maybe a little bit easier. B2B, the world we're in is really hard because the separation of the buying experience can take months, whereas B2C, right? You go online, you find stuff, put it in a cart, make a purchase. So in B2B, it's a little harder, but it was a really good conversation, I think, to to showcase from a payment side what it takes to sort of delight those customers and get them to purchase more and keep coming back.
0: Um, tell us a little bit more about how marketplaces are offering this enhanced payment experience. So.
1: Our marketplace, right, as a, as a global wholesale uh, ecosystem, again, those challenges for our buyers and sellers, are kind of numerous and they're they're very unique because everybody comes to those marketplaces in a different fashion. So solving the payment piece, especially in this day and age, is is difficult, right? Because you have issues around credit, you have cross-border issues, currency exchange issues, and deteriorating cash flow. And again, especially in B2B, cash flow for our buyers and, and sellers is the number one issue they have to deal with. Extending capital, well in advance of earning revenue back and, and, and these small and medium businesses who thrive and try and survive on a shoestring are all looking for access to capital and they're looking to get paid sooner rather than later. It just makes it difficult in a global environment when you're dealing in different currencies to actually accomplish that.
0: And so does this tie in with your pay that you've launched, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we're very excited. We just launched our embedded checkout solution about a month ago, and we've had about 100 of our brands already sign up. The unique aspect of JorPay, again, kind of leans into that cash flow piece. So universal acceptance is one. It's interesting because I talked to a lot of European sellers who say, oh, Europeans don't use cards. They don't, they don't want to use cards. And they don't use cards because they're not offered the opportunity to pay by card. Some of our early brands, um, I find the vast majority of their European buyers are doing so with card. And so it tells us that you need to create solutions that are meant for that buyer. And they're treated more like consumers, right? These small buyers look more like consumers than big enterprise institutions. So universal acceptance, right? Paying by Apple Pay and um, PayPal and different cards um, and then offering them terms. So we're able to internationally offer terms to a buyer in one country and provide the cash flow in a different currency to the seller. So that's really what makes us unique. And especially on our platform, we have so many international buyers and sellers. It's just a great solution.
0: You're just touching on, on what you just said earlier about um, you know, th- those payment terms, you know, if you're a supplier to a business, so you've, you've been asked to you know, provide a service, but you're not gonna get paid for, say, 60 days. Sometimes it can be later with some big big businesses. What's the guarantees to to those clients using your, your platform? Yeah,
1: so uniquely, we have an underwriter who sits in the middle. So the great news for our brands is that when we extend terms to one of their buyers, we take the risk. So we call it, we're the merchant of record. So we take all that risk And fraud and all of the money movement off the plates of our brands so we'll extend terms to a buyer say 60 days so we collect from them 60 days down the road but after a couple of days of processing we'll fund the brand their money immediately and so we solve that cash flow which is at opposing ends of that transaction and again, internationally being able to do that, I don't think there's anybody else who can do that across currency.
0: And we've seen obviously the last, um, I mean, we're, we're recording at a time where in the UK, we're on our third prime minister now in four months, but over the last couple of weeks, the fluctuation in pound against the dollar, how does that work in terms of those, you know, that, that time uh, difference, you know, in the guarantees that yeah, you're providing?
1: That's great, uh, great question. So, so the, the the currency conversion rates that we spot in the transaction, so we guarantee those for 90 days post. Right, okay. Right, so, so the good news, again, we have so many brands, to your point, who are selling something today at an exchange rate today that, you know, when the UK is on their seventh prime minister <laughs> down the road... Um, Quite possible. <laughs> right? I mean, who's up next, right? But, but the rates, they all... Raise their hand and they don't know what to do. They do their best, Yeah. right? Um, with that, but but that risk is is real, and it really can cut into their margins and hurt their business. So, when they aspire to grow globally and internationally, that really holds a lot of those brands back. Which is why coming onto the Jura platform for any fashion brand globally is really the place to come because we can just help them with our digital uh, connections and our platform, but being able to process payments on their behalf, improve their cash flow in that moment and take all the risk off their plate while providing their buyers access to any form of payment is just taking a lot off their plate and allowing them to grow globally.
0: Sure. Um, How do you see the future of payments then from a a customer experience perspective?
1: Yeah, I think from our standpoint, Again, looking at the buyer as our primary uh, customer that we're solutioning against, I think our need to continue to add payment types that they want to use, right? So again, adding Apple Pay or adding crypto, um, real-time payments, right? Getting those funds immediately without waiting several days, even in between for settlement. Those are the types of um, capabilities we're going to continue to enhance and grow.
0: And so just finishing off, Tom, any key takeaways from uh, Money 2020 so far for you?
1: Yeah. So I was here last year, and it's probably three times as big this year. I think the most important part about this show is collaboration. And I was mentioning to a few other colleagues, the partners that I met last year and discovered last year in short conversations are the ones who we worked with and partnered with to create JorPay, this embedded global checkout. It's I found them at this show. So this notion of like there's no um, there's no unimportant conversation. Like have the conversations, collaborate, learn what everybody does, and, and putting those pieces together, you'll never know what you might find. Tom Collins, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for us.
0: So I'm here with uh, Vartika Ambwani, director uh, for fintech at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, Vartika, you just finished moderating a session with a pretty uh, good um, panel here we've got we had Scott uh, Sanborn, CEO of Lending Club uh, Wendy uh, K Lee uh, CEO of Payment Bank and Colin Walsh uh, CEO of Varo so yeah tell us a little bit more about what was discussed
2: the session was amazing we had three CEOs who really shared their different stories about how they went about in getting a bank charter so as you know in fintech a lot of bank, a lot of companies would work with either a bank sponsor who has a bank license, or they would go to obtain their own banking license. So we had Scott from Lending Club who actually went through the getting a license from a different route, where they went and acquired a bank. So that was very interesting to hear. We had Colin Walsh from Varro who went through obtaining a charter itself. So they built the process from ground up um, and went through the charter route. And then Wendy, who actually is the founder and CEO of Piermont Bank, she shared her story in terms of how she got her own charter, how she powers fintechs who don't have the charter, and how do they power fintechs so they can go to market faster. So three very different stories. We talked about the current environment. We talked about advantages and disadvantages of each route what they would do differently and, um, and their advice for the founders. So it was a very lively discussion. What about
0: where you've got um, like a startup when, when they're looking to get their bank mm-hmm. charter, what are the challenges that, that they face and also how do they overcome them?
2: I think fintech just in itself is a very regulated industry. So obtaining a bank charter, first of all, it costs a lot of money. So one thing that Colin talked about from Borrow, he talked about having investors who really believe in your story and will stick by you because it's a lengthy process, it's an expensive process. So there's a money aspect of it which not many early stage companies, especially who are just starting out, can afford. Um, and then the other aspect of it is actually acquiring, which is again, very expensive and it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of resources to obtain that. So I think for an early stage companies, it's very hard for them to go into a regulated environment like FinTech and build the operations from ground up. That's why they have banks like Piermont Bank who will power them, who will work with them and get them to the market faster.
0: And so how does Silicon Valley Bank fit into this whole FinTech uh, ecosystem?
2: Yeah, so I've been with Silicon Valley Bank four years now. Before that, I was at two startups and we are very much a tech-focused bank. So we are in the commercial banking space. We help our companies or we partner with our companies on the commercial banking side of things. We also do lending for them. And then the last thing for it is really just being an ecosystem. So the reason why I joined Silicon Valley Bank from a startup was where I always thought, where else would I get an experience? like this where we bank all the fintechs or we bank all the startups but we also bank all the majority or majority of the vc and pe funds we really get to be in the ecosystem so it, it's it's amazing so we support our companies not just through capital through lending options but we are a commercial bank so we support them on the commercial banking side of things but the thing that we take a lot of pride in is our relationship and and we try to go beyond the banking services and help our clients, whether it's connecting to each other, connecting to VC and V E funds, really just taking advantage of the ecosystem that Silicon Valley Bank has.
0: Now understand that uh, Silicon Valley Bank are launching a new state of fintech report. This sounds really interesting. Tell us a little (laughs) bit about that.
2: Yeah, we're super excited. So basically, we're just coming out with this report, really talking about the fintech ecosystem, um, where the investment dollars are going in fintech companies, where the VCs and PEs are putting in money, and also how the fintech companies are performing and what we're seeing in the market. So we're very excited to put that out. Again, being at SVB, we're very lucky where we get to be in the center of the ecosystem. So this is a report which will touch upon what's happening in the fintech space, where are some of the trends that we're seeing where do we see the market and the industry going? So that report comes out November 8th and we're looking forward to it.
0: Okay, now just to finish off, one last question for you. And we were speaking just before we started yeah. recording this. I know this is not your first Money 2020. This You've done a few. This my sixth Money Sick.
2: 2020.
0: Wow. So. so on that note, What's been different about this year? Any kind of key takeaway that you're going to take from this year's Money 2020?
2: Yeah, um, first of all, it's always great to be back. It's amazing to be at a conference where you get to connect with so many industry folks. And again, being from Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of the companies are client of ours. So it's also very efficient for us because we (laughs) get to see all our clients. Um, I would say the conference is great as usual. Last year, just comparing it to last year, a little less crypto than what was last year, more later stage companies, but again, you see talent and you see companies who are always here and it's just great to always be here.
0: Well, and Amwani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
0: So we're now joined by Randy Kern, CTO of Marketta. Randy, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Um, you guys have made quite a few announcements at this event, so I've got a few things I want to go through with you very quickly. Um, first of all, yesterday you announced the launch of seven new products as part of uh, Marketa for Banking. Let's start there, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, as you say,
3: we launched Marquette for Banking yesterday several new products, all part of the Marketa platform, all API driven, all hosted in the cloud, and really powering our customers to innovate in their businesses around digital banking for their customers. So there's a direct deposit account, there's bill pay, there's several features there, you can read all about it on the website, uh, but really to drive innovation in the banking space for our customers.
0: What was the response from the, uh, you know, the people here? Oh, the it's FDs. been
3: fantastic actually, as I've walked around the expo, as I've had one-on-one conversations, you know, folks have been really interested Interested in thinking about kind of the innovation they can drive for their customers based on this new platform and the new capabilities we've just launched.
0: How, how will this unique digital banking solution help consumers and also what does it mean for the, for the customer journey?
3: Well, you know, one of the things that I keep hearing about at this conference, and by the way, this is my first time at Money 2020. Uh, one of the conversations that I keep having, and I keep hearing other folks having as well, is around embedded finance. The idea of bringing your sort of financial capabilities, bringing all of the uh, capabilities and tools and financial features that one needs in their daily life to meet a consumer, meet a customer, wherever they happen to be. So with a platform like Marketa for banking, we help someone, whether it's embedded finance, whether it's a de novo or mobile bank, really a lot of different sectors meet their customers in a really unique and individual way. You know, one of the things that sets the Marketa platform apart is the ability to customize at the transaction level, at the account level, in a way that you really couldn't before. Okay.
0: Um, next announcement that you guys have made, you're partnering with Blockchain and Rifason. Do you want to just expand on that a little bit
3: yeah so two great customers two great institutions uh Reifusen launched a new card product for their customers uh, in poland and um, romania to start okay and uh, that's obviously using the marketa modern card issuing and processing platform to power those cards on behalf of their customers and then blockchain is using our platform to really bridge the world between crypto and fiat currency So at Marketo, we don't do anything directly with crypto, but what we allow our customers to do, especially in the case of blockchain, is to have a debit card for their consumers, for their cardholders, that can convert crypto into fiat at the point of sale, kind of in real time as you're trying to
0: conduct a transaction out there in the world. So all these announcements, these partnerships, what does that all mean for Marketo's future? How do you plan to further disrupt the banking space?
3: Well, you know, what I really enjoy about this whole segment and kind of the way that Jason Gardner created this platform, created this company, is the innovation that people create on top of us. You know, folks have started to do things that we never envisioned when the company was begun or the platform was envisioned. In fact, blockchain is a great example of this. We weren't thinking about how to conduct cryptocurrency to fiat in the field and use that on a payment card. But the fact that the platform based on open APIs, it's cloud hosted, it's modern, it's composable, it really allows a huge amount of innovation in our customers. So when I think about the future, the thing that really gets me excited is to see all that happen. Have conversations with our customers, have conversations with others in the industry, and really see where they can take things. That's
0: great. Um, Randy, you said it's your first time here at Money 2020. Um, What's been your kind of key takeaway from it?
3: no, I think I'd come back to embedded finance. You know, okay. I hear that conversation over and over and over again uh, and just hearing how folks are trying to do this the ways that they're trying to disrupt their own industries and their own opportunities, uh, it's really interesting. And I, I think it's a, a very powerful shift as well. And you know, I think of it not just in, in the context of embedded finance, but also in sort of tailoring the experience to the individual, to the account holder, to the card holder, even to the transaction level at times, and giving us a level of control that as consumers or card holders we've never really had before. And that's pretty exciting. Randy Kern, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Russ.
0: So joining me now is Laura McCracken, uh, Managing Director for Commerce and Payments Global at Accenture. Uh, Laura, you uh, were moderating a panel uh, discussion a little earlier on the future of super apps in the West. Um, you had uh, representatives from Rapid and Mercado Libra. How did that go?
4: It was It was pretty damn awesome, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Uh, we had people packed around, you know, three or four levels back. They couldn't kind of kind of get into space. That's great. So I think we're to something. I think the whole subject of the super app is really catching people's imagination.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised. Any kind of what, what was the big highlight for you during the One, session? One, there's
4: no consensus. I okay. mean, there everybody you have a big debate about whether or not it's going to take off in the U.S. Everyone knows it's super super popular in Asia, but in the U.S., a lot of people say there's not really a need but you have a lot of people really wanting it and willing it to happen. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll come on to You mentioned Asia. I mean, WeChat you know, pioneered this term super app. How does it differ to the apps that you and I have on our phones?
4: Well, it's very different because in China, WeChat actually has a million apps within an app. So it has light apps. They're called mini programs, but they're light apps. A million apps, and you don't actually see them. You just serendipitously come across them as you're shopping and spending your everyday you know, walkabout life. Whereas in the West, we have different apps for each thing and you have to click on them. That's one app for one app.
0: Tell us about um, social commerce then. Can you kind of just describe it in a bit more detail and also the size of the market here?
4: Yeah. So social commerce, the way that we define it is it's the integration of commerce and social experiences. It's really about, it's what it's not. It's not advertising. It's not when you're on, say, Facebook or Instagram, you click an ad and it takes you to another website. It's about actually natively buying while you're in the app. And we are predicting it's going to be 1.2 trillion by 2025. At the moment, it's roughly um, uh, 10% of e-commerce, but it's growing, going to be growing to 16.7% of e-commerce by 2025. And that is three times faster than e-commerce and eight times faster than retail.
0: Right, so there's no getting away from this. No. Some of the big players in finance potentially oppose super apps moving over to the West. Why why do you think that is?
4: Well, it's the the incumbents you're really talking about. The incumbents, they they do have kind of a vested interest to see that their business doesn't go to a a super app or a FinTech uh, that becomes a super app. But their real concerns are about privacy, regulation, um, they've been there, done that. They said, look, we've we've tried.
0: Are they justified, those concerns?
4: Some of them, yeah, absolutely. These are yeah. problems that we have to sort out, right. but it's not insurmountable. Privacy, uh, competition, all these things can be sorted.
0: Do you think there's any kind of, public resistance to, to the idea of one app ruling everything? Um, there is.
4: It, it's and It's kind of generational. So I find that the baby boomers are kind of saying, you know, no, I don't trust um, the social media sites as it is, I'm yeah. not going to give them even more power. Um, but the younger generation is is less resistant to the idea of, of one app to rule them all. But I don't really think that's the only version of super app that we'll see. I think there are variations of, of niche super apps. So it's not just going to be one site, one winner fits all. You can have multiple winners, but still have the super app concept.
0: Yeah. Is there any sort of apps out there at the moment trying to become the super app?
4: Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you've got, uh, I think, Klarna, Block, Revolut and yeah. PayPal all consider themselves to be super apps in the making.
0: And what's your personal belief in this whole kind of area? What do you think is going to happen?
4: I do believe. Look, it starts off differently in every country. You'll notice that in uh, China it started off with chat in, um, and with Alipay it started off with the payment wallet. Uh, in Indonesia or in, in Asia or Southeast Asia it started off with um, the ride-hailing apps. And so it's, it's different in every region, but I think that in the U.S. and in, in uh, Europe, for sure, it's going to start off with the wallet, the financial services mobile app. And I think then, my next prediction, uh, so the first prediction is where it's going to start. The second prediction is, will it be a super app to rule you know, all apps? No. I think there will be niche apps, niche yeah. super apps, like an entertainment super app, a travel super app, uh, a gaming super app, a metaverse, a dating fashion. You know, lots of different things you can have out there that will be multiple apps within an app and where you're connected with the, um, the ecosystem, yeah. including creators and merchants and other users.
0: Sounds great. Um, Laura, last question for you. What's been your key takeaway from Money 2020 this year?
4: Uh, uh, it's all about the ecosystem. It's partnerships. Uh, one thing I've learned is that when I come to Money 2020, it's not about selling. It's not about buying. It's about figuring out who's really playing in the ecosystem and figuring out how we can collaborate together. It's all about partnerships.
0: Good stuff. Uh, Laura McCracken, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So joining me now, I'm delighted to welcome Mia Alexander, VP for Customer Service at Dave. Um, yes. Mia, thanks so much for joining us because I know you've just come off yes. uh, stage. Your session. Which was on the evolution of the CMO. Uh, You were joined by Pam uh, Pilligan from Navy Federal Credit Union and Alison McLeod uh, from Flywire. How did it go?
5: It went, I think, even better than I thought. I think because not only did we talk about the evolution of the CMO, we really talked about how anyone could apply this in any role, in any facet, to really showing up for brand loyalty, customer retention, just getting back to the basics. And I think these were like the perfect women to tell that story, um, because one is supporting military and their families, the other is is supporting global payments. I mean, these are really profound customer bases. These aren't small problems. Um, And it kind of also inspires others to say, if they can do it, what things can I disrupt and and show up differently? So I I thought it was just amazing. We also rocked out, because we're all women in FinTech, and that's also something Thing, that's an evolution journey where you know r- women are able to show up in executive roles. So it was very exciting. Yeah. And very inspiring as well. Would yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Um, let's come back to Dave, what kind of customer and brand experience are you trying to provide to your customers?
5: Yeah, I think it's so important. We're, we're, our mission is really to use our products uh, to level the financial playing field. And what that basically means is that disruption of banking is to solve the complete problem. It's potentially financial literacy. It's also um, income creation. Um, It's the basic seamless banking uh, solutions, it's goals. Um, And so really, I really like to show up in these moments because I think we're in this like profound moment of, you know, showing what a financial institution can do to think about things more fully around what customers might be needing. And we also call our customers members. And I I think that just seats them at the table with us on that journey. So we don't have to think of everything ourselves. We kind of tap into what do you need and how do we invest in that. Uh, to to really uplift you.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, Now you talk about Dave being the finance version of David and Goliath. How hard has it been to compete against, you know, the big players in the banking world?
5: Yeah, you know, um, our customer base really has uh, thought of, like, the big banks not showing up for them. And so I think of it less as a competition, but more, you're not serving me. Who else can, right? And we also saw that they're willing to, you know, maybe get three or four different apps to solve, you know, different problems because they can't find it all in one place. And really, Dave wants to do that. We want to say, you've already realized that the big banks are not playing, you know, for your benefit in some cases. They're just holding your money and sometimes, you know, feeing your money. Um, And we really want to say, like, you tell us what you need and let's try to actually use our technology to serve that need. And so I think of us as very much this network effect, this ability for us to really use technology to pipe and innovate on behalf of that disruption of big banks. So it's less of a competition because the the, the consumers already told us we're tired of the traditional way of doing uh, banking. And so we're really like, OK, let's get on board. What do you want? And let's build it for you.
0: And so one of the things that, that you do, you, you've got various different reward campaigns. You've, yeah. you've launched uh, this year uh, the cashback. Um, how do all these work in practice?
5: as easy as you would think, right? I think a lot of times when you look at how it is to sign up for a reward, it's all these, you know, bells and whistles, you have to do individual, you know, taps. We really wanna say, you know, do you want a reward and let us find it wherever it exists. And so the first thing is you can, you know, turn it all on, say, I wanna have rewards wherever I shop and we will find those applicable savings for you. And then other places like with the gas station, um, acceleration, inflation of those rates, we really looked for how do we, you know, bring value back? How do we create a reward just in the gas category? So we're not just looking for general rewards. We're also looking for what are things right now that people need that is actually exhausting their income, their paychecks, um, and really trying to use rewards to solve that particular problem. Um, It's not just the luxury items anymore. It's really the day-to-day rewards that we want to start to put money back into people's pockets on a weekly and daily basis.
0: Okay. Now, we are in a period of, you know, economic... um, Downturn, yeah. uncertainty. What's the priorities, you know, for your brand moving forward at the moment?
5: It really is. I think there's this great conversation around income creation, um, and I think you know goals, right? I think the the, the piece that we're missing is that people really have uh, their money's not going as far, and so one of the things that Dave has really done well is a is a part of our business called side hustle, and it's really where people can look for incremental income. And really um, for low impact, meaning I can take a survey, I can provide feedback, and brands are willing to pay five, 10, 15, $20 for you to actually give them advice and score it. And that's what we're trying to do is that we, we, we don't want you to, you know, two overtime sessions, right, that drain you. We want to say, like, hey, you can actually make 15 more dollars doing this. So I think income creation is going to be really something we double down on, and it's an exciting part of how we're thinking of a bank that pays you money. Yeah.
0: Uh, we've been asking all our guests the same question. What's been your one key takeaway from Money 2020?
5: Yeah, I'll, I, I'll cheat and I'll do two. One we'll we'll is, allow you yes, to. thank That's fine. you. <laughs> um, the CFPB update, I know it's not the fanciest thing, but I think CFPB is really using their voice in, the, in, in a really profound way to talk about how um, you know, a lot of people can't move from one bank to another because it's very difficult. You have to start over from scratch. I remember an account from 16 and like when I had to start all over again, it's like, oh, I'm a new customer all over again, but I had all this history. So I think that was really important for me to hear. We're now gonna really look at mandates to allow customers to more easily take their history um, and transfer their, their direct deposits when they are ready to move. And it makes that competition more around grant, like how are you gonna win this customer uh, versus the stickiness that you're actually forcing them to stay with you because of the effort. So that was one. I thought that was amazing. The other is this uh, creator economy that's uh, bursting. Um, you know, I have a six-year-old who thinks she's a YouTube star, but, you know, <laughs> actually, you know, she might retire me. She might be like the new multi-billionaire, right? This, this business is actually creating so much yeah. uh, financial impact. And it's also so diverse that anyone can find their audience and do that work. Uh, so I think those are my two like great takeaways.
0: Two original takeaways. We haven't heard those. Oh, really yay. good ones. Listen, Mia Alexander, thank you so much for joining Absolutely. us.
5: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm now joined by Arne Sani, um, co-founder and chief business officer of TerraPay. Welcome to the show, Arne. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Should we start with a quick introduction to your business?
6: Sure. So uh, TerraPay founded in 2015. Uh, and then when we started 2015, the idea was very simple to, to create a global infrastructure for payments. It sounds as if like you know, everybody's doing payments, but I think the idea was to make uh, global payments uh, more reliable, agile, uh, and to do that was to make it digital. So you know, when we looked at our businesses you know, we looked at and said it's 2015, it was pre-COVID. And everybody talked about is like, you know, hey, you know, this is a lot of cash involved in in, in global, uh, you know, transfers of money. We built this business on being completely digital. So uh, and I remember in 2015 when everybody said, is like, Ani, you're doing this wrong. You shouldn't be doing it. You, know, you should be looking at cash payouts as well. But we stuck to, you know, that position of being able to deliver transactions real time to bank accounts and mobile wallets. So today. What we have been able to do is to build this infrastructure of global payments in 103 countries. Uh, We can deliver transactions to 4.5 billion bank accounts globally, 1.5 billion mobile wallets uh, globally, and all that is done within 30 seconds. Uh, So it's a Sunday, it's a Saturday, it's a bank holiday. We would get customers' money back into the in their in, in their loved ones within 30 seconds that is what terape is all about so it's a global infrastructure we work with licensed entities like banks we work with you know money transfer companies and help them do the last mile payouts be it you know p2p payments which is like individual to individuals so or it could be like business to business uh, payments so that's in general what what we did but one of the things which which differentiates terape from uh, from other, uh, you know, global payout markets was like you know everybody thinks global payments is a business of technology. It's actually not. It's actually a business of compliance. So for us, when we started, uh, you know, in 2015, as we built our own technology for global payouts, we also invested a lot on global compliance. So we went out, went to the local regulators in multiple countries, got our own licenses uh, from the local uh, regulators, banking regulators. What that allowed us as an infrastructure is one side being a technology infrastructure but also on the other side being completely compliant. Uh, So that's where banks, money transfer companies love us because you're taking the end-to-end service, which is technology, and you're taking compliance into one box and offering an end-to-end uh, payout services. You know, today, you know, if you look at it, everyone is digital. You know, everyone wants to have everything to be delivered real-time. You know SMS is delivered real-time. You know, WhatsApp messages are delivered real-time. So we decided, it's like, why can't money be delivered real-time? Uh, and I think that is the key pillar of how we looked at it. So as I said, of our transactions today get delivered within 30 seconds globally, be it Cambodia, be it Bogota, be it Africa, be it Europe. And that is extremely important because today consumers worldwide are looking for everything to do with real-time payments. And it's not just in india for example or china or be it in singapore or be it in you know in the us everywhere the re- demand is to deliver the money real time
0: but can you just explain because there are differences in those payment processes here in North America, where we're recording today, compared to some of those other markets
6: that you, that you mentioned earlier? I, I hate to say this, but yes, you're right. Yeah. And I think um, you look at the, the whole US uh, uh, side of the story when it comes to payouts and, and how monies are transferred within the US and from the US outside. To more sophisticated markets like, uh, and I would call it the UK, for example, with faster payments, or Euro with the, the SEPA payouts, or India with UPI, and, and with other, and Singapore. I think this market really needs the step up related to real-time payments. And when we talk about real-time payments, you're talking about money is to be paid out in 30 seconds, not in one hour, not in 24 hours. So I think that is where the next level of uh, progress uh, for, for the markets are going to be. So I think uh, what we are planning to do in the US, for example, is to kind of you know, look at what we have seen successes in other markets. And I I, I see this as a great synergy uh, and, 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 a, and a parallel of how we did something very unique in Bangladesh. And, and I know you would say like, you know, Bangladesh versus the US. But yeah, it is, you know, in, in from a from a regulations perspective, it's the same, but in terms of the infrastructure is again very same. So Bangladesh does did not have uh, an, a great ACH network like what you have in the UK or in, or in Europe. So what we did was rather than waiting for the regulators to build uh, a, you know, a domestic ACH network, which was the Fed is trying to do here, we actually went out and, and started connecting to individual banks and actually create that whole interoperable platform on our own itself. And and I think that's where someone like Terape comes in and says, OK, if, if it's not available, we will do that extra year, go out and do those integrations. So today, when we connect to 17 banks in, our, in, in Bangladesh, we are able to deliver at least 84% of consumers real time because of those individual connectivities. So that's what we do. So, I, I see that as a parallel. If I do, I've done that in Bangladesh. There's no reason why we could not do this in the U.S. in, in, in a different way. But that's how I see that the U.S. really needs the real-time payments where you're able to do pay transactions real time within 30 seconds, within one minute. That's where we are. So
0: that sets the scene nicely for where we are at the moment. In terms of you know future trends,
6: what should we be looking out for when it comes to cross-border payments? We have to look for three pillars. One uh, is you know, I think everybody, when we spoke about, is real-time payments. The second one is just being completely, completely compliant. Today is an interesting world, you know, where you know you you, you need compliance on the forefront. So every transaction needs to be 100% compliant. Is going from anywhere to anywhere, and it can only be done when you have a robust kind of an understanding, and then you're participating into the local. Uh, regulatory environment so i think it's extremely important to do that you know and the third one i think to me is and it's all about you know ux uh, how can you make uh, the transaction more user friendly uh, for consumers everyone wants to have a digital experience how can you make that digital experience much more seamless for every demographic for every you know uh, you know, consumer i think those are the three pillars on which we are really looking for Uh, Even though we are a B2B company, when I say B2B is like, you know, we're not consumer-facing. We think like consumer-facing brand for our partners. We're trying to see how can we come on the forefront and actually help uh, that experience come better, uh, so that their consumers can actually have more trust with our partners, which means the partners can have more trust in us. And that's where the stickiness comes in. So that's in general what we are doing. Listen, got one final question for you, Ani. What's going to be your key
0: takeaway from Money 2020 this year?
6: So, uh, you know, this is our first time uh, in the U.S. uh, to do a booth. Uh, We always come in here uh, as a delegate. Uh, So um, uh, our experience is like, you know, for us, and we're expanding into the U.S. and LATAM in a big way in this year. Uh, and there is no big, there is no big uh, event than the Money 2020. No. Yeah. As, as simple as that. We do. We did uh, a number of times in Amsterdam. Uh, you know, we have seen some massive success uh, with the Money 2020. There is no reason why to to look back and say uh, we won't be here next year. Absolutely, we will be here.
0: Well, hopefully we'll get to chat again. Absolutely. But until now, thanks. Thanks so much for joining I'm the podcast. Appreciate it, Russell. Thank Cheers. you. So, joining me now is uh, Katrina Holt, SVP Operations at firm. Um, Katrina, thanks for joining the podcast. Um, yeah. You're running a session tomorrow with Arlene uh, Zernak from Karabo and Zach anderson Patet from Money2020, and it's all around compliance. Um, what are you hoping to be discussing?
7: Um, I would say it's actually going to go beyond compliance. So, we are okay. on, a, on the off-the-record stage, so it could really go anywhere. Um, But Arlene and I have been colleagues and now friends for over 15 years, starting out together in um, risk management and audit primarily, and then um, moving into compliance, and she has stayed on that path while I've taken a bit of a divergent path, but through that time from traditional banking to non-traditional banking to bank partnerships, um, being on the, the CCO side of that, and then moving into fintech, we're we're really talking about sort of that, like how do you bring together compliance risk management and then operating um, in the business. And so we're hoping that we can have just a real and candid conversation that is in you know in a casual environment where we can talk about that and encourage those that are considering making that move as to like what are some pitfalls, what are some learnings, hopefully to fast track that transition, because I think we both believe deeply that that diversity of experience is, is really critical uh, for this industry.
0: I mean, you kind of touched on it there. I mean, you've made that, that transition from working for a bank to a fintech. What are the main differences between the two?
7: Oh, there are so many differences just <laughs> between the two models, obviously, but I would say from, in particular, what we're focusing on in being a risk manager is that you have to go from being a risk manager to a risk strategist. And it is an entirely different model when you're in a highly regulated environment. The, the programs and the expectations are pretty well laid out as to what you are supposed to and expected to be doing on a daily basis where in the fintech space, it is intentionally disruptive, it's intentionally innovative, and so every day feels like navigating through a meaningful amount of ambiguity. And so you go from being a risk manager to a risk strategist. And I think that that is one of the biggest transitions is that you cannot sit separate and apart from the business or the function. You really have to be in there strategizing and partners as you're defining new products and entering new markets and doing it in this new and disruptive way. So I think just that like the mindset going into it is is one of the biggest things but what we'll talk about a little bit tomorrow too is that there's also a lot of just it's almost like learning an entirely new language, learning an entirely new culture and how do you navigate in that in the most influential way possible? Do you
0: feel like more of a technologist now, perhaps.
7: Absolutely. Yeah. In fact it's I I pride myself on that now, which is was pretty funny. I came into a firm in particular because of my background in banking and my background in risk management and now I fully see myself as a technologist that offers financial services versus being a banker or, or even being a risk manager.
0: Why is it important that fintech companies embrace compliance?
7: So I think we've seen through and through, I've been coming to conferences like this for I think almost 12 years now. And I, every, every year and every season, we're talking about regulation, we're talking about compliance. And I think that what is really been awesome to see the evolution of is the embracing of it in DNA versus like something else we have to do. We're gonna build new products but then we're going to make sure they're compliant. I think now we're seeing a shift and certainly at my company, this is this has held true since I've been there which is compliance has to be at the forefront, it has to be at the beginning, it has to be when you're considering the design and development of new products. Who are your consumers? Who are your stakeholders? Who are your regulators? And if you're not doing that at the beginning of the process, you're redoing and remaking and costing yourself a whole lot of just operational burden by not doing that at the beginning. I think the other thing for a compliance professional that has been really important to me is that like working with technologists and understanding that it's not necessarily the same language all of the time ultimately you can get down to why do these regulations exist? Why do these compliance expectations exist? And they're really for the protection of the consumer and the soundness of the institution. And so when you get, when you really understand that, like of course that's what we want to do. And so for me, that has been why like embracing it from the get-go has been really important.
0: You say you've been coming to places like this for 12 years. I wonder if we look around and see how many of these businesses didn't even exist oh. 12 years ago. I mean, it must be a huge, huge percentage. Yes, it's, it's crazy. absolutely
7: crazy. In fact, I haven't come for the last two years, and right. just even in the two years coming here, it's its actually overwhelming. Yeah, just, so many
0: new startups. Yes, absolutely. It's exciting, thanks. Great yes. time. Um, in terms of your role then at, at a firm, I mean, what's the biggest challenges that, that you've got to ensure? that your company now is is adhering to all the necessary regulations?
7: So my role now is that I lead operations. And so I have responsibility uh, for all of the servicing from origination through to recovering um, on the dollars owed. I also do all of the fraud operations and merchant operations. And so for us, the biggest thing is the complexity of what you're building and building it fast. right? So the systems, the processes, every time we define a new product, every time we go into a new market, we're doing it at, I would say, at mock speed or what feels like mock speed, having been in the industry for a long time. And so it, it's not just enough to want to do the right thing. It's, it's the actual design and effectiveness of the controls that you're putting in place and ensuring that those are actually going to, one, mitigate the risk, but do it in a way that is scalable and sustainable for the business. And so that complexity, it just, it grows every single day. And if you're, again, back to the question around bringing compliance in at the forefront, if we're not designing intentionally the products and the processes and the technology right from the get-go, it just, it becomes overly burdened and overly complex. And so just navigating through that while still innovating and still, you know, like, meeting the the desires and the big dreams of the business is just it's a never ending challenge.
0: Sounds like you're excited by the challenge though.
7: Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um listen, we've been uh, asking everyone uh, this same question. What's been your key takeaway so far from Money 2020?
7: Well, I have a few and I'm still like attending many conferences. I think my takeaway, I said I've been coming to these things for for a long time. Yeah. And I I've, I've been struck by one, the the things that have not changed. We're still talking a lot about navigating the ambiguity of the regulatory environment and how do you regulate the space and how do all of those things come together in a way that doesn't crush uh, innovation and crush disruption. We're still talking about that. And yet we're also, I mean, just looking around and and we talked about this, right? Like the, the number of companies and, that people have developed to, to really tackle just very nuanced pieces of the just the whole financial services ecosystem is so fascinating to me. So it used to just be a bank developing all of these capabilities in house is now this tapestry of these really cool and innovative companies and it's how you put that tapestry together with you know for a company like a firm with our value proposition of who we want to be to consumers and who we want to be to merchants it's it is energizing. And so I would say that the energizing piece, probably also why I'm exhausted, <laughs> is that um, coming here, it just it has such an optimistic vibe in a time when we're, we're all like working through some really weighty challenges. It still has that optimism of what can be for the future. So that's that's been really fun.
0: That's great stuff. Uh, Katrina Holt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, my next guest is Quincy McKnight, a CEO and founder of Covenant Pay. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Quincy. Should we get a quick introduction to your company to start with? Sure. Um, We are
8: headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I consider Nashville one of the greatest cities on earth, Um, but um, but, uh, we're born and bred there, uh, do business there in the city. Um, Covenant was founded there in Nashville
0: um, as a traditional payment rail system company. Now, blockchain is is something key that, that, you know, you talk about and that you're dealing with. Why has the rise of blockchain uh, meant a more inclusive financial system?
8: Well, because from my perspective, uh, being African-American and a leader in this industry, I can't help but to think about the African-American community and the business owners that are, will be, and that are currently being affected by it and that are actively participating in in the blockchain industry. because of the benefits that crypto brings to the table, to me, what that does is it, it decreases that wealth gap um, within that. So that's where that inclusion can come in for me is, is focusing on that wealth gap and, and making that wealth gap
0: smaller. Well, let's, let's go into a little bit of detail then on the session that, that you spoke on. It was called the power of the minority transaction in the future of digital currencies. You were um, exploring the myth of the six hour black dollar. Can you, can you expand on that? <laughs> sure. So there was there's a myth that the dollar
8: is only c- circulating in the African American community for six hours. So with that being said, there's been debate over the years whether that was true or not. And the reason why the debate is there because the federal government never did do a study, per se, on that. Now, there have been universities like University of Chicago. There's been University of Georgia Economic Center of Studies. They, they've they created these studies and have gone out and, and done the polling, done the research to show this is real. So that's, where, that's why I say some people say it's a myth and some people say it's not oh it it is accurate so versus the other hours that the dollar stays in the
0: other communities right okay and so just sort of i I guess building on what you were just saying a little bit earlier how do you see the future of blockchain helping communities of of color and making the system more inclusive
8: well it's definitely going to decrease the wealth gap as i mentioned earlier yeah Uh, that's just one big barrier the second thing is i think it can bring trust to communities around the United States and around the world that have not trusted the, financial, the normal traditional financial systems, um, because we all know we have stories of where financial, your normal financial institutions have crashed. You know, there's historical, historical moments of those things. And so this just helps that process, um, making people feel, well, if I
0: don't want to go the traditional route, I can always go the digital route. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um- Quincy, I've got one final question for you. We've asked all of our guests this. What's been your key takeaway from Money 2020 this year? I would say everyone
8: sees the direction of payments. This has been very instrumental in waking up the world, especially the leaders here at this conference. It's allowed the leaders, the other leaders, to see that payments are aggressively moving forward. So. That's one takeaway I would say that everyone should
0: walk away with. Princeton McKnight, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode from Money 2020 US, so thanks again to all my guests who took the time to chat with us over the last couple of days, and to the team at Banking Circle for partnering with us and hosting us here on their booth. Um, We hope you've got a lot out of this episode, and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on any of the topics we've covered, so if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, uh, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn, and Instagram pages. They're all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com. Uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, uh, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well. Um, or, of course, you can connect with me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.